Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So my name is Justin Gottlieb. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, it's awesome to see you uh, this morning. Hope you've had, had a good morning. And uh, we're going to be opening up to the text that I just read, Deuteronomy 6, 20 to 25, and talking through that today. So I grew up playing and following multiple sports, football, basketball, baseball, and of course, golf, golf. All right, I don't need to talk about that today, but one day, okay? Um, But I had precious little exposure to soccer or the other kind of football. And I mean, like many Americans, I understood that there was a ball that you kicked towards a net and that you weren't supposed to use your hands. To my mind, this was a very strange sport. Some of you are really vibing with that right now, even. But a few years back, it became really clear to me that my children enjoyed soccer and would be playing the game in the coming years. So I decided that it was time for me to start learning about the game. And I wanted to do that to help them grow as players because it's way more fun if you're like, successful at it. Um, But more importantly, it was a way for me to care about the things that they care about and invest in our relationship. So as a result, one Saturday, we turned on an English Premier League game, and I was immediately confronted with a very important question from one of my children. Who are we cheering for? All right, so in that moment, we decided, based on the incredibly sophisticated and complex analytical formula of whose uniforms are best to pull for Manchester United. And it would be all well and fine, except it wasn't just that week. So we actually decided to support a team simply because it was a sunny day in Manchester, which there's not many of those. And they were wearing these beautiful red shirts and white shorts, and they won that day. And and I'm a nerd, so before long, I was reading the sports section of Manchester newspapers, you know, as one does. And we were watching more and more games. And we realized that there were things, as we did this, we realized, I realized, that there were things that set apart this club from other clubs. See, even though they spend tons of money on acquiring top talent from outside, there's also a huge interest there, more than most places, in developing internal and local talent in the academy and seeing those players actually make the first team. See, there's an expectation there that they'll not simply compete for the domestic title, the Premier League title, but there's an expectation that they will compete for the biggest European trophy. There's also a ceremony each February to remember the Munich air disaster. See, on February 6, 1958, an airplane carrying Manchester United's first team home from a European match crashed in Munich. And with it, so much and so many of the club's dreams like just evaporated right there. 23 people died in that plane crash, including seven players, and all of them were young. Like, the team was clicking, and they had just secured a semifinal spot in the European Cup, which was the big goal. They were on their way to being the first English team to win that competition. And there's a lot more to that story that I'm not going to make you listen to right now. There's questions like, why were they even flying in the snowstorm to begin with? Why were they the first team in England to really emphasize winning that trophy? See, we don't have to get into all that today. I'm simply telling you all of that 
to help you see that the story of the Munich air disaster has shaped who the club is today. It shaped the songs that are sung. It shaped the words and images and banners that are hung in this, in this stadium. It shaped the lives of players who weren't there at the time. And players that weren't even, yeah, that weren't there or alive. And it shaped the definition of success for the club. And I knew a little bit of this a few years back. But it wasn't until Mariah and I spent a day in Manchester at Old Trafford getting to see a United home game and then going through the museum that it really started to, to click. See, as we spent time learning about the, this horrific plane crash at the part of the museum dedicated to it, um, as we were doing that, we realized it's just a few steps away from the trophy room that's filled with dozens of trophies. And we, we started to see why the fans are so passionate. Not only for their team to be successful, of course, everybody wants that for their team, but, but they want their team to play a particular way, and they want to win particular trophies. See, I began to understand that the loss of that team, which was competing at the highest levels and ready to attain that biggest trophy, has shaped the club in ways that are they're still happening 60 years later. And this is because story shapes who we are. And it's not only true of a soccer club, a continent away from where we sit, but it's true of each of us. Much of who we are is driven by stories that we identify with. See, we behave certain ways. Uh, we develop certain rhythms of life and certain routines, and we invest our, our money, our resources, our gifts in certain ways based on stories. See, this is true of Apple users, right? The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in square holes, right? Apple has leveraged that story into becoming the biggest company in the world. And many of us buy into it every 12 months, like literally, we buy into it. It's true of coffee drinkers, whether you're into Keurig, right? My taste, my style, my Keurig, that's on their website, whether you're into that and you try, not to, you try not to waste the smallest bit of effort making your coffee. Or if you're into dunks, right? America runs on Dunkin'. And we know you're into dunks because you flip your iced coffee upside down in the most risky coffee move you could ever do every day to shake up that iced coffee. Or if you're into that third wave single origin life that you research and you have beans shipped from various roasters around the country because you just really get coffee in a deeper way, right? Story shapes who we are. You guys see that? Story shapes our actions. Story shapes what's important to us. And there's a reason for that. It's that we're wired for it. See, the thing is, though, that all the stories I've just mentioned, they all have one commonality, whether technology or coffee or soccer Right? And that, that commonality is that they all let us down. They all let us down. See, if I'm honest, and I don't want to be about this, Manchester United disappoints me regularly. Like, like yesterday. Like they really did. Really did. Yet, we got the gear and we, we watched the games. My iPhone has to be charged. Literally. has to be charged. Or else I can't use it. And it stops working properly every few years. It's crazy how it happens, but it just stops working properly so that I replace it. 
your coffee, no matter the one you choose, it gets cold or warm, depending on how you want it, and it stops tasting good. It just does. So what do we do? We make another cup. See, as it turns out, none of those things truly satisfy, but we've identified with the story, so we keep watching the game, upgrading the phone, and ordering the coffee. And if none of those stories resonate with you, and maybe you just go, I'm, I'm, a, I'm above all those stories. So if none of them resonate with you, then I can promise that you have another story, and your story may be not identifying with all those other stories, and I promise that that other story still lets you down. Yet stories, even when they're lesser stories that let us down, continue to shape who we are and what we do. But there is a story that hits different than all the others. And it's a story that actually proves to be good and for our good always. So let's pray and we're going to dive into that one. Father God, I pray that you would help us now to see you rightly, to see who you are and what you've done and how that changes everything for us. Would you do that? Would you grant us that grace to hear, to see who you are, and to believe you, I pray. Amen. So we're going to, as I said, open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6 if you haven't already. And as we start reading there, I need to tell, give you the setting of that. So as we're picking up, God has freed his people, picking up meaning in the Bible, so this far in. As we're picking up, God has freed his people, Israel, from the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. And God used a man, Moses, to lead his people out of Egypt, and he moved miraculously throughout that process, including plagues and turning a river into blood and parting the sea so that his people could escape Pharaoh's army. And even with God's clear presence and leading, his people had times of unfaithfulness to him that led to a time of wandering through the desert for 40 years on the way to the promised land. So in Deuteronomy, Moses is retelling their story, and, and where we pick up today, he's been telling them what they need to do and what they, they need to hear and, and what they need to do so that things may go well with them as they continue heading um, towards this new land so that they can continue to walk in the blessing of God in the promised land. So we're going to pick up in verse 20 right now. So when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies? and the statutes, and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. I'm just going to stop there. So in the verses before this, like I just told you, Moses has told God's people, or he's telling where they've been. And in 15 verses before this, Moses tells God's people that there is one God, one, and that he is our God. And because of this, God's people are to love him with all their heart, soul, and strength, and his words, they're supposed to love his words, Commands that Moses is sharing, um, these words, are, the words and commands are to be on their hearts. And then Moses tells them, and right now I'm skipping back to, to verse six and, uh, to 7 and 9. But in, in that he tells them, you shall teach them, the commands, diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, in those words, Moses is telling God's people that God has transformed their lives and that their lives should look differently than they did before. 
the reality of what God, of who God is, and the reality of what God has done should be a topic of conversation with their children. See, who God is and what God has done um, and what that means for them should be talked about in their homes. And as they walk on the road and as they are in the morning and when they are about to sleep in the evening. You guys see that? When he's saying those, that's what he's telling them. Essentially, Moses is communicating that God's character and God's commands should be reflected in every area of life. Even to the point that as you read at the bottom of this, the last couple of lines of this, um, even to the point that they should have Scripture near them always, and there are to be visible reminders when they're entering homes, their homes, and when they're entering their cities, that God is, in fact, their God, and that they are His people. And so it's with this context that Moses voices this expectation and this assumption in verse 20 um, that a son will ask his father, a son will ask his parents, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Moses is assuming that God's people are living in a particular way that would cause their children to ask, not necessarily with attitude or not necessarily with sarcasm and not with a poor spirit, but that they would be prompted to ask, why do we live in these particular ways? Why do we live like this? See, this question assumes that there's enough exposure to, to faith and faith-driven life rhythms that a son would have a question. Right? For the Israelites, their lives were to be built so that remembrance of God wouldn't be missed. And we too, as people transformed by the good news of Jesus, should also be building lives like this. Right? Lives showing devotion to the Lord. Lives displaying His forgiveness of us by the way we forgive others. Lives displaying God's generosity to us by being generous to others. Lives displaying God's hospitality to us by us being hospitable to others. See, in fact, if we really start thinking about it, how much more should we take serious the visibility of these faith-driven rhythms of life on this side of the cross than they did? So let's make sure our lives are built in ways that scream, we are God's people too. Right? Let's make sure that word and prayer and gathered worship and community are parts of our lives in such significant ways that our kids would ask. Let's build our lives so that the transformative work of God won't be missed by those around us, especially our kids. Now Moses tells them how to answer the question the son asks in the next verses, in verse 21 through 23. He says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. 
when kids ask about faith, let's don't freak out. Right? We just said they should be asking these questions. And Moses tells us, instead of freaking out, let's be ready to tell them the story of why we live in obedience to God. Let's be ready to tell that story. Let's tell them the story early and often. That's what Moses is getting at here. God's people should be clear that they were in Egypt living as slaves under Pharaoh. They were in a very hopeless and oppressive situation, yet God moved mighty with signs and with wonders. God moved against Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household in ways that were visible, in ways that were felt deeply, in ways that were crushing physically, and in ways that were devastating emotionally. And God did all of that to bring his people out of Egypt. Not simply so that they could meander around in the desert. God did all of that so that he could bring them out of slavery and into the land that he had promised their fathers. See, God had made covenant with his people and he was fulfilling his promises as he filled or as he freed his people. And Moses is calling parents to be clear with their children about who God is. The all-powerful, covenant-keeping, land-giving Lord of all who defeated Pharaoh in devastating fashion. See, this is our God. He heard our prayers. He heard our weeping. He saw our circumstance and he flexed his muscles to fulfill the promises he'd made. God wouldn't allow it to be otherwise. No earthly power could stand in his way. Though he tried, though he tried, Pharaoh was no match for the Lord who could split the sea. Kids, this is the story. This is our God. It's God's story. And it's our story. It's our story. And it's changed everything. We're slaves no more. We're headed to the promised land. This is what Moses is getting at here. Let's keep going in verse 24 and 25. And because the conversation goes on. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, all these commandments, and to fear our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we were this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. Because of all that God is, has done, and is doing, God has commanded us to obey his commands. Because he's who he is. Because he's always good. Because he's always right. Because he's always perfect. And he knows what's best for us. We obey his commands. In fact... It's hard to imagine not responding to his grace with adoration, love, and obedience. 
See, as you hear this story, you can see and feel why, why one writer in Proverbs would say, the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of knowledge. See, as parents, we can say, we've seen this God to be powerful. We've seen him be good. How else can we respond to God's commands? How else? But even then, catch this. The reason we want to obey is not just that God has been good to us in the past, but that he is always for our good. He's always for our good. Let's look at verse 24 with me. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, and then he goes on, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive. I'm going to read it again because it's so crucial. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes for our good always. For our good always, that he might preserve us alive. I want us to hear this. Because there's so many stories trying to get us to not believe this. God's commands aren't just for his sake. They're for ours. It's so easy to get this twisted. But God is for our good always. I hope you see that and read those words in the text here. God is for our good always. He's for his people always. He's for your good always. He's for my good always. Now, of course, our understanding of what's good may collide in the moment, all right? But it's never because of God's inadequacy or lack of love. When and where we either want to deviate from obeying him or deviate from trusting him, it's because we, not he, don't understand what's good for us. Our lack of understanding does not signal lack of understanding from God. So I'm going to list a few of these commandments because they're from the chapter before, but let's, we can read it like this. He's for our good when he commands us to have no other gods before him. He's for our good when he commands us not to steal. He's for our good when he commands us not to murder. He's for our good when he commands us not to commit adultery. He's for our good when he commands us not to covet. He's for our good always. Always. See, none of those other stories that I talked about earlier end this way. Manchester United may have an intriguing story, but they ultimately want to make money, and they're for my good only so far as I make them money, which is why Michael sends me text messages referring to my favorite soccer team as Merchandise United. Right? Apple may have an inspiring story, but they're only for you to the point that you upgrade your phone and computer and the stock price goes up. Your favorite coffee dealer is only for you so far as you place the next order. And every story is that way, except for one, which is why we have to tell this story to our own hearts over and over and to our kids over and over. God is for our good always. And this can be so simple, so simple, but we can make it so hard. But look at what Moses is getting down to in this chapter. 
Tell God's story from breakfast to bedtime. Tell God's story with forgiveness. Tell God's story with generosity. Tell God's story with love for your neighbor. Tell God's story with your discipline. Seven Mile Road. Let's teach our kids that when God commands us, he does so for our good always. And never for our worst. Never for our worst. It's never for our demise, but for our thriving and for our joy. God is for our good always. And never is that more clear than when Jesus came to free us. Not from the oppressive rule of Pharaoh, but from the penalty for our sin. Never is it more clear that he's for our good than when the perfect sinless Christ bled and died so that we could be free. Free from sin, free from death, free from needing to gain God's approval on our own. There's so much good news for us in these words today. So let's don't miss it. You and I, we've failed obeying God's commands. We've fallen short. He's been good to us, but we've fallen short. I don't have to name all of that. You know it. You and I, if we have children, if God's gifted us that, gifted us with them, we have failed at parenting flawlessly. If you don't believe that, just ask them. They'll tell you. But God is for our good always, and nothing could ever change that. He loves you, and he gave himself that you might live forever with him. God is for your good always. Let's believe him. Let's believe him. And in doing so, we're going to help our kids do the same by telling that story. And living that story, the greatest of all stories, about the greatest of all gods, and doing that over and over again. 